We all know that the national debt continues to reach brand new records. We know that we've had more economic stimulus in the last year than we've had in the history of America. How does that impact everything that we do over the next five to 10 years? Does it mean that costs are going through the roof? Are you going to be able to afford toilet paper? Are we going to be able to afford to go out to eat? How about things like, I don't know, a house, a car, and maybe something as important as healthcare. If inflation rears its ugly head like it did in the 1970s, you could see prices for everything that we care about and need go through the roof. It may be time to be rethinking how we're preparing to retire sooner. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Now that I've thoroughly scared myself and maybe everyone listening about inflation coming to haunt our early retirement plans, let's go through a history of inflation and talk a little bit about some of the headlines over the last year or so that points towards inflation. So first of all, what is inflation? The inflation rate is just the general level of prices of goods and services. The the Department of the Bureau of Labor Statistics and there's multiple measures of it essentially track a basket of different goods and services. There's about eight big categories. As you can imagine, housing is the biggest piece of that equation. Then think about things like transportation, food, clothing, medical services. All of that gets tracked every single month in the United States. And the Federal Reserve looks at that and says, hey, are we getting close to our inflation target? By the way, the Federal Reserve, their main two main things, their reason for existence, their mandate is, number one, maximum employment. They want everybody to have a job that can have a job in the United States. And number two, equally as important to them, price stability, which means inflation. So the Federal Reserve is watching inflation like a hawk every single day. And since the pandemic, we know that we have massively increased our government debt. We have massively increased economic payments, stimulus payments, borrowing that has gone directly to individuals. It's gotten so extreme that there are way more restaurant jobs available and open than there are people applying. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a McDonald's owner in Tampa just this past week that's starting to offer $50 just to come in and apply for a job. So $50 to just come in and interview for a job at McDonald's in Tampa, Florida. What that tells us is that there's this labor shortage right now. And in order to cure the labor shortage, companies are going to have to very likely just increase what they pay. Well, guess what happens? All of that increase in pay flows through to pretty much everything we buy, including the menu at McDonald's. It's just one of thousands of examples. We've enjoyed this long period of time in the United States where inflation hasn't seemed to be that big of a deal. But if you go back to the 1970s, it was a it was an enormously significant part of economic planning. Back in 1975, inflation hit north of 10% per year. 
Meaning what used to cost, let's say, $1,000, now the new price tag is $1,100. Big, big jumps in inflation in really short periods of time. So it made everything more expensive. And I think if there was ever a time that we're going to get inflation, it would be over the next decade or so, just because of everything that's happened economically. However, since around 1980, when inflation peaked, the United States inflation rate began to be tamed dramatically. And if you look at a chart from the mid-1990s all the way until today and look at different categories, it's actually pretty fascinating to see that in general, yes, we know that there are certain areas like college tuition. I want to go through a couple of these categories. To me, this is just kind of fascinating. Over a 20-year period, things like college tuition and fees, that went through the roof up 170%. Over the course of 20 years, that's massive inflation. The cost of general education up 151%, child care 110%, medical care up 100%. So you can see that there were there's certainly areas that we've had significant, if not massive, inflation. Well, how could it be that inflation's only run at 1% or 2% during that whole period of time? Well, there's been some areas that have been massively deflationary, meaning that the cost of these goods, as we all know, if we think about the technology we have in our pockets, the cost of technology, which is pervasive in the United States, has come down dramatically. So let's go a couple of categories that have offset those massive rises. Number one, clothing. Over that 20-year period, actually dropped by about 4%. Software, this is when it gets to be significant, down almost 70%. The cost of toys, I don't know how big economically this is, but the cost of toys down about 70%. But here's the big one, TVs or televisions. And if you think about almost everything we do, it has to be, it's staring at a screen or a monitor. And this is a really important number here. The cost of televisions over the course of 20 years is down 96%. That same thing goes for the price of technology that we have in our smartphones. We've all heard of the story that if we had to assemble the iPhone 20 years ago, it would have cost $350,000 to do so or $3 million to do so. And now for around 1000 bucks or $1,500, you can get the computing power that used to send people to the moon and back. That general lowering of costs or deflation around technology and the screens we view them on has really impacted the overall basket of goods in the United States so that it's really kept CPI, consumer price index or inflation, at a very moderate level. Technology has also helped companies become more efficient so that we've gotten more productivity out of workers and the cost of labor has actually stayed relatively low. Labor, a massively important cost or throughput when it comes to what companies have to charge. So technology's worked a couple of different ways. It's lowered the cost of our consumer goods and computing power, and it's also lowered the amount companies have had to pay in labor costs. That might be changing. My example about having to pay $50 just to get somebody to come in and interview, the thought that we just this week, we saw that federal government minimum wage went from the $10 range to the $15 range. That's a 37% increase in what federal workers are now getting paid, at least on the on the lower end of the scale. That's not just a transitory shift that'll be here today and gone tomorrow. That's really a permanent shift. Once you have a brand new minimum wage at $15, prices go up for employers, which in this case is the U.S. government employing. 
and wages go up for employees. And that is a new level or a new plateau. It's not going to go backwards. So we're going to see a permanent jump in prices paid to that group of workers. And that's going to flow through to all other areas of the economy, not just government employees. So here we are, and we've kind of gotten comfortable in the last 20 to 30 years about not really worrying about inflation. And I also worry that inflation hasn't really been baked into the calculus or the calculation when it comes to figuring out how much money you really need when it comes to retirement. And here we are at this inflection point where we see labor costs going up and what I can see as a near permanent change. The cost of lumber hitting an all-time high, which flows through to this statistic from a week ago. We are 3.8 million, according to Freddie Mac, we're 3.8 million homes short in the United States. It takes a long time to build 4 million homes. So it's very unlikely we're going to all of a sudden see these major inputs. And again, housing the major input, very unlikely that you're going to see that slide back in the other direction after we have had what I would consider this almost tsunami of government money, tsunami of government stimulus, all hitting this economy to get the United States through the pandemic. But there are lasting effects to that. And that's, again, why this inflation topic has come up and come to the forefront, lasting effects. And I just want to make sure that we are all prepared as listeners of the Retire Sooner podcast to make sure we fight against that. So far, year to date, the year 2021, let's go through a couple of the different inputs to our economy that flow through. This year, lumber, year to date, is already up almost 60%. And lumber, by the way, is measured in random length lumber futures. And again, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on what that even means, but think of it as a big truckload of lumber. And what does that cost? Or a big pile of lumber? Think of a bunch of, I think of a bunch of, two by fours. But for a lot of our, our over the last 20 years, you go all the way through the 1990s and all the way through the 2000s, really until just very recently, that's been in the 200 to 400 range, very durably. It wasn't until 2020, as the pandemic kind of roared on, that we saw lumber prices start to break out of that long-term range and go to 600, then 700, then 800. Now, here we stand today. Lumber prices have already hit the 1,200 mark. So I think 200 to 400 bucks for 20-some years. Now, all of a sudden, at $1,200 for random length lumber futures. That's what we use to build houses. So lumber prices through the roof. Copper prices up 23%. Cobalt prices up 54%. Lithium Obviously, a huge component in batteries, up 93%. Aluminum, 20%. Soybeans, up 18%. Gasoline, up 41%. These aren't just small shifts in the cost of what we have to pay. These are significant commodity price changes that flow through to everything that we spend money on. I'm going to go back to this example of the restaurant owner, James Meadowcraft. He's a McDonald's manager in Tampa, Florida. He's now advertising that he will pay you 50 bucks per job interview. Here's his, there's a couple quotes from him. This is interesting. Our staffing levels haven't really changed from a few months ago. So again, same amount of employees for now, but demand has gone up dramatically. And think of it. 
you have stimulus checks. So people are getting $1,400 stimulus checks. That's not going to last forever, but at least that's a 2021 event. Tax refunds. Again, let's think of that as more of a 2021 event. But then all of this pent-up demand of people not going and spending money during the pandemic to now shifting to going out and spending money. Extended unemployment benefits, all of that, again, relatively, that's not going to last much beyond 2021, or it may, depending on what the government and what our politicians do. But then all of a sudden, we have had over 200 million doses of vaccines in the United States, and the world is getting back to normal after a very long period of time where people just weren't going out to eat. They weren't traveling, weren't flying on planes. So we're going to get back to a restaurant industry that even though restaurant numbers did relatively well through the pandemic, there's clearly now so much demand that the supply of labor is just not there to meet it. And we're going to see a what I believe is now a permanent step up in what it costs to pay people to come work at everywhere from McDonald's to other areas of the economy. Let's look at this from an earnings perspective. Bank of America tracks this data. They, they, they track the number of times the word inflation is mentioned on earnings calls. That number has tripled compared to last year. That's the biggest jump we've seen since the early 2000s. We're hearing from companies like Coca-Cola, Chipotle, Whirlpool, Procter & Gamble, Kimberly-Clark, all saying on these calls, that they are preparing, these are companies preparing to raise prices to offset all those rising input costs we just talked about. The CFO from Procter & Gamble just said that the increase they're seeing in commodity costs is the largest that he's seen in his entire career and expects the pressure to continue to grow. They're preparing investors right now that their prices are going up this fall. The executives at Chipotle said the same thing. Everybody in the restaurant industry is going to have to pass on those costs along to the customer. Whirlpool, what they're saying, costs likely going to the 12% increase range. They're trying to offset what's expected to be a $1 billion hit for that company from higher input costs. It costs them a billion dollars more to build the same product that it costs for last year. What are they going to do? They're going to pass that billion dollars onto the consumer. Example after example of anywhere from lumber to housing to restaurants to burritos and washing machines. Costs are going up. And it's not just a blip on the radar. Now, for all of this inflation is coming talk, there are plenty of ways to plan for this and protect yourself from this. I mentioned earlier about the 4% rule. One of the most fundamentally important rules when it comes to making sure our money is going to last. We all want to know what's the most I can pull out of my retirement portfolio and have the money last for 30 and 40 years. Well, the 4% plus rule is a hugely important piece of the equation to make sure that happens. However, when it comes to planning for retirement, because we've had 30, 40 years of very minimal inflation, I noticed that investors aren't baking that number in. Hey, I need $8,000 a month today. Am I really going to need much more than $8,000 in the future? Well, over the last 20 years with benign inflation, the answer is not really. It's been relatively flat pricing. But if we go through a period like the 1970s, and let's just say we get inflation for a decade, that's going to really move the meter on that 8,000. Maybe it's now 12,000 a month. Maybe it's 14,000 a month. Maybe it's 16,000 or doubled. 
if you didn't bake that into your retirement planning equation, then what variable would have to change in the future? You'd have to pull more money out than maybe expected. The next consideration has to do with how you're investing your portfolio. And a huge answer to this, by the way, has to do with making sure we're investing so that the amount of income we're able to take from our investments continues to rise along with or perhaps better than the rate of inflation. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But for now, there are trillions of dollars in the United States that are the default option. And I would make a wager in your 401k plan that is something called the target retirement plan. And the target retirement plan is essentially a 60-40, a 60-stock, 40-bond portfolio that is the new default option ever since they changed the retirement rules and went from saying money markets default to, hey, these target date funds are default. Still better than leaving money in cash. The problem, though, is that Americans are headed into retirement with trillions of dollars in a portfolio that might be 30, 40, 50% in bonds. So how are bonds going to perform if we have a period of time where we have high inflation and interest rates start going up? If we can do a quick refresher on how bonds work, it's pretty simple. It's kind of like a seesaw. If interest rates are coming down, bond prices are going up, that's what we've had for the last 40 years. But what happens if it works in the other way? If we have high inflation and high interest rates going through the roof, that means our bond prices actually come down and could come down significantly. So I'm a little bit worried that there's so much money that's been poured into these target date funds that, by the way, get more and more conservative as you get into retirement. They don't just stop at 40% in bonds. They increase. The older you get, the deeper you get in retirement, a target date fund increases the amount you have in bonds and decreases the amount you have in equities. So again, we're talking about two similar items here that are both really important. One the standard 60-40 portfolio that was the kind of default balance option for so many years, a static 40% in bonds, a static 60% in stocks. A lot of people end up having that over time, a lot of investors. What has become even more popular and pervasive because it's the default option in so many 401ks is the target date fund. And the target date fund is the cousin of the 60-40 but it's arguably worse because you pick a date, hey, I'm going to retire in the year 2030. And then that fund perpetually gets more and more and more conservative. So it adds to your bonds. It adds to your bonds. So the, the deeper you get into retirement, even though we might be seeing inflation, it's adding to the very asset that may have the, the most difficult time at combating inflation. Now, what does that mean for the 4% rule? Quick refresher on the 4% rule or as we call it here, the 4% plus rule. It's a rule that helps you try to figure out how much can we maximize from our portfolio or withdrawing? How much can I take out? What's the most, Wes, I can take out of my portfolio and not run out of money? Originally back in the 1980s, a an MIT aeronautics uh, engineer turned financial planner did the study that said over time, and he published this in the early 1990s, over time, you can take about 4% from your portfolio and not run out. And that's through multiple inflationary and some deflationary environments. There was also a caveat to that so that a portfolio always had at least 50% in equities 
all the way up to 70% in equities. Any lower than that, there wasn't almost enough horsepower to overcome inflation. So the good news is that the 4% rule has accounted for inflation over nearly a century. What's important to note, though, is that sometimes the 4% rule ended up in much better shape than others. So if you get to a period of time, if you retired in, let's say, 1969, and all of a sudden your retirement coincided with the biggest inflationary environment, you ended up with the least amount of money in the long run because inflation took so much of your portfolio. When you ended up with a massive surplus over 30, 40, 50 years, were periods of time in history when you retired, the markets were good, and we went into a really low inflationary environment. So what we're trying to solve for here today on this show with this worry of coming inflation is that if we do head into a period of time like the 1970s, you've just got to be really, really careful to make sure that you're following all the real steps in the 4% rule. And the number one, perhaps, number one piece of that equation is to make sure you always had at least 50% or more in equities in what I consider the best way to protect your purchasing power because we know that over time stock prices go up or at least have historically and should continue to do so because stocks are genetically engineered to move higher over time and generate more and more earnings. And dividends that get paid out from companies have historically been not only just stable, but have moved higher and moved up twice the rate of inflation over time. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But as a reminder, target date funds, they don't stop getting more conservative. So we just have to be careful with that. As again, if we know that the 4% rule, even though it accounted for inflation, it also said you you can't go below 50% in equities, where a target date fund will go from 50 down to 45, down to 40, down to 30, and gets to the point where there you may have almost no equity exposure as at the very time you need it in retirement if inflation is roaring its ugly head. So how do we rethink our preparing for inflation or our preparation? I think the really main point here is to make sure that inflation is in fact baked into your long-term plan. So when you sit down and project out how much money you're going to need in the future and how much spending you're going to need to be doing, It's pretty easy to have a retirement plan that runs at 1.5% inflation over time. Let's run that at 2.5% and 3.5% and maybe even 4% to just get a handle on what that spending number really could be. How much could your spending number grow if we do have a whole decade of really massive inflation? And if you bake that into any sort of retirement plan that you do, and again, it doesn't matter what the, the software is or how you do this. In every single retirement plan, there's not that many different numbers to put in. And one of the key numbers is inflation. So just make sure you're running that and looking at what if scenarios, if inflation comes in higher than we've seen it over the last 30 and 40 years. So planning is the key to preparing yourself for higher costs. Let's go ahead and revisit some of these higher costs. Again, it's just another reminder of that inflation, even though it may not have felt all that bad over the last couple decades, over time, it is pretty significant. Maybe that's an understatement. In 1970, the cost of a new home was twenty six grand, $26,600. The median household income was $8,800. Cost of a first-class stamp was $0.06. Cents. The cost of a gallon of gas, 36 cents. 
But we look at a chart today. What's the median sales price of a house sold in the United States? Well, the last reading was $347,500. So think of it this way. Home prices from 1970 until today have gone from twenty six grand to buy a house to about three hundred fifty grand. So as I'm doing some real-time math on this, I probably should have done this before we recorded the podcast, but here's the real-time math, is that if you take 26000 which was, again, the median home price in 1970, and where it is today at about $350,000, i am going to round the numbers here. That's about 50 years worth of data. If you do the math, 26000 to three fifty dollars is a 5.33% annual rate of return. It means that housing, which, by the way, is the biggest chunk of the pie when it comes to inflation, that cost, and this is, I'm looking at, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. One of it is what the cost of rent has has become. Another is what does it cost for the median sales price of a home in the U.S. And 5.33% per year is pretty darn significant. If you take the rule of 72, which means you take your rate of return, and divide it into 72, it'll tell you how many years it takes for your money to double or your, in this case, the cost of your house. Do the math here, 72 divided by 5.33 means that every about 13 years or so, the cost of housing is doubled in the United States. And it's the biggest chunk of the pie. If you look at a pie chart of where the inflation really hits us, housing is number one at 41% of the overall consumer price index basket. Food and beverage is number, actually number three. Transportation is number two, obviously the cost of cars. And then we have all these other areas like healthcare costs and recreation, education. But those are the big pieces of the equation that we're all looking at. Complaints I hear from folks that are in retirement, and they'll say, hey, Wes, even though their quote hasn't really been much inflation. It feels like there's a lot of inflation at the grocery store. So we tend to almost conflate, well, I'm, I spend the most time at the grocery store, but it actually is a relatively small line item relative to the bigger categories of inflation, like housing. Housing costs a heck of a lot more for most people than what it costs to buy a pound of coffee. Now, you may disagree that with that if you're in retirement, you don't have a mortgage. I get that. But Interestingly, if you go back to 1970 and look at different items at the grocery store. So, for example, a gallon of milk. Back in 1970, it was $1.14 for a gallon. But if you look at that on an inflation-adjusted basis, it was the equivalent of paying almost 8 bucks for a gallon of milk back then. Today, the average gallon of milk costs about 3 bucks or $3.20. So, so milk is actually less expensive on a comparative basis. Bread was 24 cents back for a loaf in 1970, which is the equivalent of about $1.63. Today, it's actually $1.36 for your average loaf of bread. So a lot of food prices are actually a little bit lower, but I don't think that moves the meter for most folks because it's not that big of a part of your overall spending relative to things like housing, which is the number one category, and transportation is the number two category. Now, let's talk about how do we protect ourselves when it comes to investing that can help to offset inflation over time. I'm going to talk about two categories here. The first one is REITs or real estate investment trusts. And then, of course, just dividend paying stocks in general and how they protected us over time from inflation. 
if I go back to 1972, and I'm going to talk about REITs as just an index. I'm not talking about a specific company. I'm just talking about the REIT sector in general. REIT is R-E-I-T, by the way. It stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. That could be anywhere from big commercial buildings to apartment complexes that are publicly traded companies and their categories as REITs, categorized as REITs. So from 1972 to this past, let's say last year, 2020, REITs on average uh, were up about 11.5%. That's total annual rate of return. In 1979, when inflation was, that was literally the worst year we've had in the United States when it comes to inflation, that REIT category was up 24%. So over time, not only have REITs done well historically over the last, call it, nearly 50 years, but they had their some of their best years when inflation was at its highest. So don't forget REITs as a part of your portfolio. As far as where do REITs fit in, you can look at it a couple different ways. REITs are very much in the stock category. These are publicly traded stock. So if you're trying to have your portfolio in the 50 to 70% range when it comes to overall equity exposure, REITs are part of that calculus. I will get even more specific at some points and I'll technically put REITs in the alternative income bucket. But if I were to generalize, REITs are very much part of the stock allocation when it comes to investing for income and combating inflation. Now, let's talk about what I consider to be the best elixir for this potential inflation problem. Listen, to some extent, we're always trying to solve for inflation. Investing is very much how we are trying to protect our purchasing power over time. So inflation is always part of the calculation. What we're trying to solve for here today is more inflation than we've had over the last, call it, 40 to 50 years. So I'm going to do a quick review here, but if you haven't listened to, it was episode number seven, but the title here was The Power of Rising Stock Dividends. This is a podcast we've done right here on Retire Sooner. And here's essentially what it said. If we look back to 1980 and just track the dividends that come from stocks, and in the podcast, in the Power of Rising Stock Dividends, I actually compare this to the value of bonds. Today, I'm just going to talk about what it has done from a stock perspective. $10,000 back in 1980, the S&P 500 had a yield or a dividend of about a little over 5%. So you got paid 529 bucks that very first year. 40 years later, the the dividend income from that same $10,000 investment in the S&P 500 rose to about $5,400 per year. That's a near 54% annual yield if you go back and look at your original investment. So that shows that the income from stock dividends grew at about 6% per year over that whole period of time. Inflation during that same period of time, grew at about 3% per year. So stock dividends, and this is just the S&P 500. There's no special index or anywhere else. Stock dividends increased at double the rate of inflation. Let's look at this in another way. That annual stock dividend over that 40-year period of time increased about tenfold, about 10x. Bonds, on the other hand, rose less than two times during that same period of time, And you actually saw a 67% decrease in income from bonds. 
So it doesn't matter if you got $500,000 or $5 million or $50 million in your retirement portfolio. It's in, in my opinion, it's hard to find a more consistent source of growing income to outpace inflation than investing in equities just in general. Now, if you think about, could I get even more specific and find higher dividend paying companies that also have solid growth prospects for the future? Well, absolutely. Now that's a whole nother story, but something I've spent really my entire 20 plus year career searching far and wide for. So is it time to rethink how you're going to retire sooner? Well, I think that what we talked about today is one of the just big pieces of the equation when it comes to solving for how much money you need to save to be able to spend what you want to spend in retirement, and that's inflation. If inflation really does rear its ugly head over the next decade, it's going to change the calculus a little bit. And we can prepare for that, and we can prepare for that by baking it into our assumptions when we plan for retirement, and we can protect ourselves from inflation. My favorite ways to protect against inflation is to invest in assets that typically grow even faster than the rate of inflation. And pretty simply, the two examples we gave today, real estate investment trusts or REITs, important piece of the equation, and just stocks in general have been able to do that job. And I don't see why that won't work over the next 30 and 40 years as well. Over the next year or maybe more, you're going to see more and more headlines and they're going to be scary headlines about inflation. But you're not going to be worried about it because we're preparing for that right now so that you can stay on track for the retire sooner life. If you'd like to find us in real life, you can reach our team directly through the contact form at westmoss.com. Please share this episode, rate the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information.